everybody. Welcome back to The Matt Report. Season 9, new directions, new guests, new content, and a new website and some new branding. If you head over to mattreport.com, you'll see some new branding. You'll see a new website powered 100% by Beaver Builder, built by my good friend, Devinder. And you can see Devinder's work and his efforts over at smartwebcreators.com. I actually had this, the design and the branding done by a local uh, graphic artist, Chelsea Aruda, uh, and Devinder put the pieces of the puzzle together for me for the Beaver Builder website. So I can't thank him enough. If you're looking for Beaver Builder help, or you just want to get connected to his podcast and YouTube channel, check out smartwebcreators.com. Today's guest is Rob Walling. Now, many of you know Rob from uh, Tiny Seed, Microconf, Drip. Uh, we had him on a couple years ago to uh, talk about the acquisition of Drip by Lead Pages and see where things were at uh, at that time. And now here we are, fast forward a couple years later to talk about how things have changed and what he's doing with Tiny Seed now as an accelerator investment program. And uh, when is it the right time for for you to join an accelerator program? When is it the right time for you to accept money, get a co-founder, and sort of jump into uh, this this wheel of investment? And uh, not venture capital, but something that's more, I don't know, bootstrapped, organic, more homey. <laughs> I don't know. But we're all of those questions uh, have been answered in today's episode by Rob. I always enjoy talking to Rob and catching up. Hope you do too. Let's dive right into the episode. Hey, before we dive into today's episode, do you mind just sharing this on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you share your content's really going to help me amplify the Matt Report, get out there more, get more guests, get more audience, and just make this a better place for all of us to learn from. I'm looking to explore more places uh, that are you know, traditional SaaS-based businesses, more homegrown software businesses really is who I really want to target and talk to uh, with the Matt Report and extending beyond WordPress. And that's really the mission here. So I'd really appreciate a share, a review on iTunes. It's all helpful to help me get found and bring us some great advice. All right, let's get into that episode. Thanks for having me, man. It's my pleasure. Just a touch over three years. I think it was September 2nd was the uh, September 2nd, 2016. When we last chatted here, it was a few months right after the uh, the drip uh, acquisition by lead, uh, lead pages, excuse me. Yep. Uh, quite a bit has changed since then. <laughs> so everyone knows you as the serial entrepreneur, as the as the guy who started Drip, uh, but now you're the uh, the founder or co-founder of Tiny Seed. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Tiny Seed is it's the first startup accelerator designed for people who would traditionally bootstrap. You know, if if your listeners know about Microconf, have heard of kind of the the ethos behind that. We've never been anti-funding, but we're kind of anti-losing control of your company and really anti-everyone thinking you need to be a unicorn. And that's what MicroConf and, you know, has been for 10 years. That's what Startups for the Rest of Us, my podcast, 460 episodes of that. that that's really been the kind of the driving force. And so Tiny Seed, you know, I, I looked around and, and I see all of these programs and all of this data and all this, this help and mentorship if you want to be a unicorn. But what about the rest of us? What about the other 99 out of 100 companies that really sh aren't venture scale, shouldn't be venture scale, and are just going to be great $20 million SaaS companies or $10 million or $5 million SaaS companies? Still life-changing and very right. profitable. But there really, you know, really wasn't anyone focusing on that. I mean, again, I have been with my blog, the podcast, and MicroConf, but we've never written checks to people. And so that, sure. that was the idea was provide a year 
of, of you know, accelerator mentorship, basically a year long program. It's remote because, as you know, you know, a lot of our folks are remote. We can't force people to move to move, all move to California or all move to Minneapolis or whatever. And then we write checks between about one hundred and twenty and two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the number of, uh, of founders. Uh, let's dive right into that, because I don't want to just leave it on that point, because a lot of people might hear, wow, I can get I can get a hundred grand <laughs> and, and I guess I'm done. Right. Like right. The, the work is, is just, is really just starting at that point. And I would even argue that the work really starts is when, once you graduate from this cohort, but I'll let you sort of explain that. What, what do people do with this money? How do you guide them to, to leverage the opportunity that you give them? Sure. And I mean, you know, I'll start by saying we got almost 900 applicants for the first batch. We funded wow. 10. Yeah, it was very, it was more than I thought, actually. I was shooting Jeez. for 500. I was going to be happy. And it was a lot. So we're actually trying to get fewer <laughs> fewer this time because <laughs> there were a bunch of people, you know, we were really focused on SaaS, um, recurring revenue, s- subscription software. And we got a lot of like, uh, not a lot, we got, you know, 30 kind of consumer package goods applications and 30 consulting firms apply, you know, just stuff that really wasn't in the wheelhouse. So I prefer for those, you know, to narrow the funnel there. But um, the range of those 10, almost all of them had, you know, at least a couple thousand dollars of MRR. I feel like our sweet spot is kind of between two and 20,000 of MRR. So people do have to, you have to have, not have to, that, I shouldn't say it. It's better if you have traction. The more traction you have, the more, you know, you've proven that A, someone wants this and B, that you're a founder who's, who's able to ship. And so, yeah, once we, back to your original question, you know, once we write the the check, we, it, what's interesting is it's been um, different each of the different companies has spent it differently. Like there are two mm. of the founder, actually, you know, three or four of the 10 used it to, to quit the day job, to essentially fund their year of runway with this uh. money. So they get a $120,000 check if you're a single founder and they're essentially using, let's say eight grand a month for that. And then two grand for kind of marketing or contractors or whatever. And uh, since they all have revenue, there's a little more budget there. There are others like one couple had kind of geo arbitraged and moved to Mexico. They're from Seattle, but they moved down there to, for cheap living. So they're able to take all the money and they're investing in product. They're trying to go up market. So they need a bunch of features built. So they're hiring some extra help developers. And then another, um, well, you know, Craig Hewitt of, of Castos, some of your folks may know, he's, he's from the Rogue Start, Starters podcast. Um, he's in the Tiny Sea co- cohort and he's using a chunk of the money to hire a, like a growth marketer. And he hired her sure. uh, last month. And that was something he didn't feel comfortable doing given current revenue. But, you know, th- this allowed him to basically take, take a leap and move faster. Yeah. Uh, keep Craig's name in the back of your head because we're going to talk about something that he and I chatted about on this, uh, on this podcast a few months ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been mentoring in a accelerator for uh, uh, a local accelerator and, and they're growing pretty rapidly. They've been in in, I'll say business. They'll be in business for about five years now. It's called eForall, eForall.org. And it's for going to um, up and coming cities to find entrepreneurs who are making a sustainable business and an, uh, businesses that make impacts on local communities. So effectively investing in in local talent of companies who are giving back to hiring people, making better products for local environments and stuff like that. The checks are not as big. They're about 15,000 at max. Um, it's a 90 day acceleration. Um, and they learn, you know, everything soup to nuts, uh, you know, marketing, legal, accounting, re- uh, retail space, uh, real estate, everything. Because uh, some of these folks are just traditional businesses, right? They, they might be starting a restaurant. They might be starting, I don't know, um, soaps, making soaps, right? Um, organically or whatever. And what I've found is 
that these folks, um, because they're, they're trying to give opportunity to a lot of people at once, same thing, you know, each chapter might get a hundred people, uh, applying, which is big numbers for, for these smaller markets. Um, but a lot of these people diving into an accelerator, they're not ready to run a business yet. They have a great idea, but they, this, they, this could be their first time running a business or even exploring the idea. And that's the opportunity that eForall wants to cater to, but it can be difficult at times. All of that said, is there a perfect fit or template of a founder applying to Tiny C that you look for? I know it's still in its infancy. You might have not seen too much turbulence yet, but um, anything that would prepare somebody to come to you to say, okay, this is this is the big leagues now a little bit. You you do have to follow through with what we're giving you. Yeah, that that's a good point. I mean, I think this was a lot like hiring for a role. You know, when you do when you hire for mm -hmm. a developer, or hire. I mean, we did a ton of vetting in terms of a lot of conversations. I did about somewhere in the seventy to seventy five. Uh, conversations. Well, I talked to 70 to 75 individual founders, some of them more than once. I also, um, you know, my co-founder, Arnar Volset did. I actually have my wife, Sherry Walling, she's often known as Zen founder. She sure. is a psychologist and works with founders. She consults. So she actually looked at, I would pass them on to her if I had kind of a question mark of, I think this person's sharp, but they have maybe are they going to be teachable, you know, or are they going to be too big of an ego or are they sure. going to, and she would kind of analyze them. If so, if you know, if you talk to Sherry, there's a, there's a question mark, um, you know, in my head about one aspect, <laughs> but I, I think to your point, like, how do we know that they're going to be serious? I mean, we communicate it upfront. Like, look, there are, there aren't side projects while you're doing this. You can't work, keep the day job because some folks did apply and it was like, well, one of our founders doesn't want to quit. There's two of us. And the other guy wants to keep working his job for nine months. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't do that, you know, and we wish we could, right. but like, we just can't justify that to ourselves or, or, you know, really to our investors. But frankly, the whole point of this is to focus and to go all in. And we, we handcrafted the batch by trying to find ambitious founders who are interested in this this thesis of like I want to build a ten or twenty million dollar company, but I also don't want to run myself into the ground. These aren't ninety hour weeks. We're thinking long ball. You know, we don't want to try to uh, burn everybody out. So I, I think that the answer to your question is we we did a lot of vetting, a lot of conversations. I've hired literally. I mean, I've the number of interviews I've done in my professional career, which is almost twenty years. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of phone or in-person interviews. So I've gotten decent, you know, pretty good at like reading people and the rest of my team helped with that. In addition, we have this yeah. big list of criteria. We have a, a big Google doc where it's like, you know, um, how much traction do they have? And it's a bunch of questions and it's what's the founding team like and what do we think of them? Have they shipped? Have they, um, you know, do they, just a bunch of criteria there. What's the market like? Is it big enough? Because there were some markets that's like, man, I don't know if you could build a seven-figure business in this space. It's just too tight. Um, so we would ask that question, how, you know, how you can expand. And uh, so so it was definitely, you know, market, founders probably won. Like the founding team is is the top ranked thing. And then, um, I, yeah, it's three Ps actually. I should have just said this. I, I think of it as like pe people. <laughs> this is a shorthand version of everything I just yeah. said, but it's uh, it's people product market fit and um what was the third oh pricing and price so people is like the team right and and product market right. fit is have they built something people want yet hopefully or are they really close to that and then pricing is an odd one it's like why would you care about pricing but we have got a lot of people applying where they're charging nine bucks a month and they have nine dollar average revenue per customer and the first question i ask is how are you going to increase that because it's 
virtually impossible to build a seven or eight figure business at that price. So if yeah. they had thought it through yeah. and they had a path to it and this was an in, then it's like, cool, let's keep the conversation. But if their pricing's too low or their market is B2C and it's too price sensitive, it it's tough. It's not a complete deal breaker, but it's definitely not as attractive as the, the you know, uh, ReMB who's in the batch. Their pricing's like $500 a month and up. You know, that's, that's such an yeah. easier business to build into a, a, a substantial force. One thing that, uh, of course, you probably don't need the advice or help, but one of the things that eForall does, and it's generally a uh, volunteer-driven organization. It's a nonprofit. Again, they're not handing out huge checks. Mentorship, like I commit to, is, is all free. I'm just doing it because I enjoy it. Uh, I get some networking exposure out of it. But then the whole preliminary round of the cohort what they do is they get a panel of readers, right? So they these readers just go through and read the incoming entrepreneur's pitch uh, or idea uh, or business model. And there's just a, a small survey that the readers fill out. And that sort of filters and gets uh, multiple points of feedback from various uh you know, various angles, right? Some people are just uh, seasoned entrepreneurs. Some people are retired, you know, whatever it might be. So it gets a nice uh, a collective mix there. And then they go in front of a panel uh, of, I won't say judges, but interview, uh, interviewers, I guess. And they sort of just do this round robin interview style of asking the questions. And then it gets filtered down to the one or two executive directors of the cohort, um, you know, for the final say. So might be interesting if you ever get, you know, 3,000 <laughs> applicants, you might need to open yeah. up some kind of reading team that oh, that oh, helps you absolutely. out. We are already, we already did. We hired Tracy, who's a, Tracy Osborne. She's our program manager and she's going to gotcha. be, we're going to, we're going to have to divide and conquer this time. It was very much an yeah. MVP. I mean, I'm Tiny Seed's a startup too. And it was very, it was Einar sure. and I basically working well, we were working full time. We, we didn't take a salary for eight months, you know, and we were just slamming into this thing and, and trying to get to work. So yeah, it was a, clunky ass, you know, Google form that went into a Google spreadsheet that I was using Zapier to send email. I mean, it was, it was that. And this time, second time, which we're starting again, November 1st. So just in about a month, we have like real software to actually, you know, actually do that. Uh, so if somebody's listening to this and they're like, you know, ah, man, it's just me and a couple, couple of co-founders or a couple other employees. We're looking, you know, maybe just happy at 500,000 a year. 300,000 a year. Maybe, you know, sky's the limit to a million bucks a year if we can get to that. Not the right fit for Tiny Seed if if that's the goals or... Yeah, I I would say, I mean, everyone... Because you're looking for a return too uh, in this and that's how you, you know, run Exactly. The that's how we can justify it, you know, right in the right in a check like this. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, the, the uh, you know, and, and on our website and in all the conversations, I say, look, if you want to build a, a one to $30 million business one to five, one to 10, you know, somewhere in there, like that's what you should do. But if you, if you want to build a half million dollar business, that's great. Go do that. But I don't, I don't think we're, we're probably not the, an ideal fit for you. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like we're pushing that. Um, we're not it, like pushing the company super hard or anything. We're not venture capitalists. We don't take a board seat. There is no board. We don't, we're not on them, like grow revenue, grow revenue, higher, faster. Like it's none of that. Right. That's the, that's the thing we're trying to go against. Right. The founders have control. We have a, a super minority uh, stake. We can't block a sale. Like none of that stuff. I, we basically designed the terms that I would have wanted 10 years ago, you know, and we took them from, sure. from Rand Fishkin, who was formerly of Moz, but started SparkToro. We, we, with his permission, he had open sourced them, but we, took those terms and basically tweaked them very slightly to work in an accelerator. And that's what we use. So they're, they were invented by a founder. You've been in the industry for a while. I'm sure you are uh, uh, very used to having big money come in, knock on the door and say, hey, look, 
we like what you're doing. <laughs> we can 10x it with a few million dollars from us. Uh, I'm sure that was happening to you with with Drip, and and maybe now that you've sort of splashed onto the scene with Tiny Seed, um, I, you know, how do you fend that off, or is is that something that's uh, that you know is the next step for just your business, where you you go and you and you get you raise more money to build a bigger portfolio um, or you're trying to steer clear of that and sort of bootstrap a bootstrapper's dream, if you will. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, in, so but if I was running a, a SaaS app today, much like I was running drip until three years ago, you're absolutely right. I got monthly emails, if not more often of, of VCs prospecting and we're on the mashable top 12 list for marketing automation. So you just, that's, they, they go through all those lists and sure. really it was always a question of, is this what I want? Like I never said, oh man, money, take it. That's not the right idea. It's <laughs> realize that no one's giving away money for free. So whether you're doing debt-based financing, like with a lighter capital, whether you're taking tiny seed money, whether you're taking venture, whether you're going to raise an angel round, whatever you're going to do, it, there's always something that comes with it, an expectation. And venture expectations are go big or go home, $100 million exit, or it's not worth it. Uh, we're going to be on the board. We can probably, sometimes, depending on terms, they can like block a sale, even though they only own 10% of the company. There's all these things, the strings that come attached with it. And frankly, if you need the $2 bucks and you're okay with those, then take the money. I never wanted to mm. give up that control. It's a personal thing. I'm much more of a self-funded bootstrap, indie-funded mindset. And so that's where um, I would say anyone considering funding, Think about think about it in those terms. Really try to dig in. What am I giving up, and does this fit where I want to take the business and kind of my own personal how I want to run my life? Because we're in control as entrepreneurs, right? That's why we build companies. Most of us are unemployable. I am unemployable. I'm the worst employee ever, and um, you know that's why I start my own companies. On in terms of Tiny Seed, we did raise we raised four point I think it's just under four point four million dollars to fund the first two or three batches. We can fund somewhere around, it depends on how big the, each check winds up being, but we're going to fund somewhere around 30 companies out of that. We funded 10 in this batch, and then we're looking to expand you know, the next batch, depending on how, how many applicants we get. Once we're, you know, as we're getting through that money, we will raise another fund. Like we'll raise fund two, which should be larger if we have any type of, uh, of results. And what that does is allow us to fund not only more companies in the long run, but you know, we can start doing par parallel batches, two batches a year, can we do one in Asia? Can we do one in Europe? You know, you kind of geographically expand from there. So I do view it, um, I do view it as, as something, it's kind of a mission. I mean, if you look at my track record, like I've kind of had this mission since I started blogging about this stuff in 2005, wrote the book in 2010, start small, stay small, you know, podcasting, microconf, I've done most of it for free, right? The software companies were are what made my money. Everything else was fun and or I was just trying to be part of a community that didn't exist. So I built one uh, with, along with the help of co-founders and such. Um, and this is just an extension of that. So I, I do view it as a very missional thing. And of course, it has to make money, right? Because I we need to get paid and we have to pay investors back. Otherwise, it's a failure. But it's not, um, you know, I, I view the more people that we can help, the more people that we can work with as like rising, you know, the rising tide kind of raising all the, all the boats sure. in our space. Yeah. You're actually segueing into a question that I was formulating while you were saying all this stuff. Um, I've had Jason Calacanis on the show before, and we've talked about, uh, obviously well, his book angel and sort of angel investments and things like that. Um, and he had, you know, it, this isn't unique to him. Uh, I believe this is a larger platform that's out there, but he has the, uh, you can syndicate a, uh, investment, and crowdfund an investment, for lack of a better phrase. But 
I mean, we're going into the year 2020. I'm sure there's other organizations like Tiny Seed with founders with with similar mission uh, and passion to you. Is it as easy as just saying, you know, knocking on another Rob Walling's door and saying, hey, let's partner up. Let's just combine funds to, you know, we're doing it the way we, we don't want to be evil. We don't want to overtake somebody's company. We don't want to be a VC, but to, to collectively, we can raise hundreds of millions of dollars if we just partner up. Or is it not that easy? Uh, I think, well, I mean, so there are other firms um, that are do, that are operating in a similar mode. And Indie.vc is probably the, the best known. Bryce Roberts started that in 2016 off of O'Reilly Ventures. And so he's three, you know, three years ahead of us. They're on V3 of their terms. But, you know, his thesis is a little different. He does it like we, we're focused on SaaS and he's doing, I mean, he backed someone with like a big Instagram following, like, you know, wrote, wrote a check to them, which just wouldn't be in my wheelhouse. <laughs> That's totally cool. And I, and right. I, I'm, I like what he's doing and I like that it's, that it's different. Um, yeah, I, I don't know on the partnering up. I think that, I think sure. much like, you know, I can imagine I started Drip, uh, you know, with a co-founder in 20, let's say it was December, 2012. If three other ESPs started up, should I have partnered up with them or should I kept running my own company? You know, I wanted to run my own company. <laughs> sure. I didn't want to have seven co because those guys want to be co-founders too, right? So now I have seven co-founders in a company and I own, you know, 15% of it or whatever. I mean, th there's just kind of logistical stuff there. So, and, and I also think it's better for, to be honest, it's better for a free market to have. It's better that there's MailChimp and, and Drip and, uh, you know, active campaign and, and uh, you know, it's not a monopolistic thing. And that's, that's where, why I'm excited to actually see more, uh, funds kind of coming into this space, this alt, it's like alt VC, yeah. you know, indie funding. I mean, we're trying to figure out a name for it, but I've been calling it kind of indie funding where it's, it still is institutional money, but it's not with the same strings, you know, and, and whether that's the debt financing sure. of a lighter capital or a Bigfoot capital, or it's just this, this alternative approach, like a tiny seed or an indie.vc, um, it's cool. And, I, and we're, we've already seen a couple other funds, you know, kind of springing up to also serve similar audiences. How do you keep the morale up for, and again, I know a tiny seed is, you're still going through your first cohort, right? And it's not even a complete year Yeah, that's yet. right. That's yeah, correct. we're about four, four or five months. How in. do you keep, how do you keep the morale up with an organization or a founder uh, that might be stumbling a little bit? They're, they're you know, they're, they're just not getting the traction that they thought. Um, what are the couple, one or two steps or, or, or safety nets have you put in place? Yeah, so we do, A, we have a Slack channel that we're in, you know, all day, every day. And so there's always, there's conversation and there's sharing and there's a little bit of that camaraderie because several of these folks are single founders and they work from home and they have no coworkers and their family's not there. And they're, frankly, you know how the isolation and loneliness can set in. And so that yeah, oh, becomes yes. their community. <laughs> and the cool part about it is they're able to share things that they couldn't on whatever on Twitter or indie hackers, you know, they're going to, they're able to talk about revenue. They're able to say, man, I'm really having a tough time today. Um, we have a fail whale channel where people share, <laughs> share things they failed at <laughs> and we can all consult. We also have uh, weekly calls, zoom calls. So about 90 minutes a week. Um, and we alternate kind of mastermind format. There's hot seat format. And then we have the mentor calls with the folks who are tiny seat mentors that Jason Freed's and the, you know, Rand Fishkin and Chris Savage and all that. Um, and then we do individual calls. So I pretty much throw my Calendly link into Slack or I email it to everybody every couple of weeks just to remind them, if you need me, book me. I'm not going to be up in your grill. Like, we're, we're, you know, we're going to let you uh, uh, figure out when when you need us. And there are certain folks that I can tell on a uh, like a mastermind Zoom call, you know, when everybody's updating, I'm like, 
I can tell he's having a tough time and I will reach out directly. So yeah. it really is, it's nice. There's three of us, you know, it's myself, it's Einar, my co-founder, and then Tracy Osborne, who's the program manager. I mean, three of us full time in essence would do other stuff because I do microconf, but three of us are in there and there's 10 founders. And even with 20 or 30 founders, I still think we could have a pretty good view of where people are. It's It's surprising how well we know each other already, you know? Um, even just, yeah. just three or four you months aid in. in covering some of the bases like, um, you know, large brushstrokes on, uh, content marketing, SEO, coding and programming, optimizing certain stacks. Like, do you have like an educational pipeline that the founders have to attend and go through or? Maybe that's in the future. We don't have that. And, and there's a couple reasons for it. One is because that stuff goes out of date so fast that we would need to be updating sure. it annually. And we just, we have, we have more important things to do that move the needle more than that. Right. Second thing is there, a lot of the companies are just at different stages. You know, we have a company yeah. uh, north of 20K MRR. We have a company that's doing 1500K MRR, trying to find product market fit. They don't need the same thing, you know? So what we've been doing is a couple things. One we we keep asking what's your biggest problem what's your biggest problem we have an updated status doc and then we on the the office hours calls we try to get you know there was a bunch of folks were having onboarding uh wanting to redo their onboarding so of course we get leanna patch or um you know ali blum who basically do that all day every day they're copywriters and they do a ton of onboarding so we had them do office hours then uh, we recommend, I mean, the batch will post, someone will say, hey, I need a designer, anyone have one? So then there's recommendations there. Or he'll say, can someone take a look at this? Because we have two people in the batch who are really good at UX, like they were professional UX folks, user experience designers, and they'll just, for, you know, hop on a call for 30 minutes. So there's a ton of that, where there's a, a really nice knowledge sharing across the batch, the community. And then the last thing we do is um, uh, probably two thirds to three quarters of our mentors have volunteered. We sent them a survey and they said, I am willing to do one-on-one -on -one emails, one-on-one -on -one calls and use me as much as you need. And so there's a lot of that where someone says, hey, who, which of the mentors really knows this completely esoteric, whatever, you know, SEO in the Google app store. So just a, some random thing, right? And it's like, oh, well, this person does because I know they they used to do that. And so then I'll connect them. Tracy will connect them. And um, so there's a lot of just-in-time and, and direct mentorship feedback rather than here's a course on Facebook ads. How Here's how you run Facebook ad. You know, I've created those in the past. I had a whole membership website called the Micropreneur Academy with a year's worth of content. And it was, it was great. And it was, it was, um, I think it was helpful, but a lot of times you just, there's so much information that it's like, I'm not sure yeah. which of these to do next. And I actually need some direct <laughs> advice of like, no, just go sell, just go market. Yeah, absolutely. Let's transition over the last few minutes here, um, to talking about, well, none other than WordPress. <laughs> the last season was all about the change of WordPress. It's been three years since you and I chatted about WordPress and arguably that was probably the peak uh, of WordPress economy as we know it, that is plugins and just making a, a great living off of just selling plugins or just themes. Again, this is three, three and a half years ago. Um, what I covered in season eight, which sort of took us up into the start of the summer of this year was what's changing. And um, I'm sure you have your thoughts. I'll, I'll fast track you the, the synopsis of what most people said is, my God, what is this Gutenberg thing? Who put it here? We're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that is sort of the quick uh, uh, summary of it all. Uh, you know, our respective friend, uh, uh, Justin Jackson, 
I follow his, uh, of course, a lot of the works that he does, um, but his 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 live stream YouTube channel, and he's building everything uh, with these static CMSs now. And I love like Statomic. I actually had Jack McDade on the show. Great great application. Uh, but I see Justin, you know, I'm out of this WordPress thing. There's too much going on. And then he's like pulling like 17 different like utilities together, trying to build a site. The other day I was watching him literally pull his hair out on, on designing a pricing page. Uh, and I was like, man, I could do that with Beaver Builder in like two seconds, literally two seconds in Beaver Builder on WordPress. So everyone loves it. Everyone hates it. But what's your general synopsis of, of where the opportunity lies in WordPress today uh, with uh, how much has changed in the last few years. Can people still make it with plugins? Do they have to go SaaS? I don't think you have to go SaaS, but I do think if you want to build a, I mean, if you want to build a seven figure company and everyone does, you don't have to, but I'll just, you know, say that as a statement. Like if you want to build a seven figure business and have stable recurring revenue, yes, like WordPress um, a SaaS built on a WordPress plugin or accompanying a WordPress plugin, you know, whether it's an upsell or however you, you frame that, I think that's a, it's a great model. Um, there, you can absolutely still make a full-time living though with just WordPress. I mean, I've, I'm still seeing people do that. It's harder yeah. starting from scratch. Obviously it's more crowded. I'm seeing more adopted, you know, uh, um, work plugin adoptions, right? Where it's like, oh, this has gone vacant. I'm going to email them. I'm going to adopt it. And then I'm going to, um, you know, add add paid upgrades to it or or whatever you want to do with it. And then there's acquisitions, of course, is is another way. And those get you there faster and they get you the rankings in the the plugin repo, which essentially becomes your lead channel. And you're kind of running a freemium model where you have a free, you know, the WordPress plugin is for free and then you're charging for add-ons. And can you build that into a five to $25,000 a month business? Absolutely. And maybe you can get it to seven figures, but you know, the, the folks who I'm seeing, um, you know, getting, having the good growth, of course, is where they, they attach that SaaS component to it. So I wouldn't say it's, it's necessary or it's required, but, um, you know, it's just another way to monetize it. The nice part with SaaS is on the first of every month, you know, assuming your churn's not outrageous, you, you start, your revenue starts where it was last month, right? Whereas with WordPress, like just like selling, I mean, I've, sure. I've had many one-time sale businesses <laughs> yeah. from 2005 to 2011. And yeah, first of the month, I had $0 in revenue every month, you know, and it's, it's a challenge. Sure. Um, we were speaking about Craig earlier. Uh, I interviewed um, him and his co uh, host for Rogue Startups, and we chatted about sort of uh, the similarity and and differences between the uh, uh, WordCamp meetups and the MicroConf conferences, right? And how there's a little bit of overlap between the two of them. You have people who are, well, like Craig, running a WordPress-ish business, um, attending both, um, but the mindsets are vastly different. I would, if I pulled out a crystal ball, would imagine <laughs> that you've had a nice uptick in microconf attendees from a lot of people who have said, you know, as a WordPress thing, I'm going to go find somewhere else to spend my conference money. Um, but do you see uh, WordPress meetups or WordCamps, I should say, sort of, I don't know, devolving over time? I don't know if you've spent any time sort of listening to the pulse of that of that space um, or have you got any direct feedback from microconf attendees that say yeah those word camps were great but there's just not enough business traction happening for me over there um i have attended a handful of word camps and my wife does a quite a bit of speaking at them so i am you know a little bit looped into that world um and yeah there is there does seem 
it does seem to just be earlier stages. Like when I think about MicroConf in 2011, we were, we had WordPress folks, we had some SaaS folks, we had a lot of kind of one-time download. It was just a mail, we had mobile apps, you know, just a melange of, of different software types. And we were all kind of trying to figure it out together. Like a few of us were ahead of some of the others, but it wasn't like this huge, um, I don't know this, we didn't all know what we were doing. And then as it's evolved, we're 10 years in now, right? Or nine, nine and a half years. We just have more best practices. We have more rules of thumb. We have more of a vocabulary, shared vocabulary. We did focus on business from the start and that got us here. I feel like the word camps obviously put more of an emphasis on the technical side of it or on the consulting side of it. Cause that's where most people make their, you know, the, the full-time living um, in terms of product. I, I know that, um, What's the, there's one, ugh, something press. Is it Pressonomics? That's the one that focuses. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's like one, you know, like yeah. Phil Dirksen and kind of the, I call them the WordPress mafia, the MicroConf WordPress mafia. It's a group yeah. of WordPress folks who all hang out together. And, you know, several of them go to Pressonomics. And that'd be the event that I'd almost say is more similar to MicroConf, you know, where folks are really thinking about products. They really are thinking about um, building a business, a sustainable business, a product based, not, you know, not dollars for hours on it. And so I don't think, do I think WordCamps are going to devolve? I, I I don't. I mean, I actually think they serve a, a, a great purpose. And I think that, you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of them are community run. They're inexpensive. They help new people get into the into the fold with WordPress running 30%. What is the number now? A third of the internet. I mean, I, I don't even know anymore, but it's like, yeah. that's, I can't imagine WordCamps are not going to continue to go. There's just too many people interested in it. And there's, there's too much going on. And I do think they serve a valid purpose. It's just... I wouldn't go there to try to learn how to launch a plugin or grow my plugin business, you know, or my theme business or my, my product, um, product business. If you listen closely, you'll hear the sound of me pulling a pin out of a grenade. Why did I just, <laughs> uh, was, do you have any thoughts? Uh, oh, this question. On okay. I thought I missed, I thought I misanswered your last one. Sorry. I was like, Oh, did no, I say no, something no. stupid? Okay. Yeah. Go, go for no, it. No. Do, do you, do you have any fear in the recent investments from Salesforce to Automatic, uh, investing hundreds of millions of dollars into Automatic up to raise it up to a $3 billion valuation? Oof. Do you have any fears from, from your experience? Um, you know, press releases are a press release. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to continue on the same path. But we're talking $300 million from the largest SaaS company in the software company in the world. Um, there's got to be some influence there. There's got to be some changes ahead. Uh, you know, yeah. What are you yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, obviously, I have, I have zero inside information. And I had vaguely heard that they wrote a check, but you just kind of reminded me of like, oh yeah, that happened. To me, it's probably the same fear. I have I have two fears if I were to think about WordPress. One is, yes, taking $300 million at that kind of valuation has to change things somehow. And we don't quite know what, because they're probably not going to talk about it out, you know, in public, but over the course of five years, seven years, like do they need a do they need an exit? What kind of liquidity? Um, did that provide liquidity for for founders or early stage investors? Typically, when you raise that much at that late stage, that's a lot of that goes to buying out early investors because they essentially need liquidity at that point. So, does that change the dynamic? Um, the second thing, and perhaps for me, is like the more important thing is like that I'd be worried about in the back of my head is like what happens when you know if Matt Mullenweg decides to move on or. And obviously that's, it's crazy, right? How could, but how could Notch have sold um, 
uh, Mojang, right? Makes Minecraft. How could Steve, uh, or not Steve, <laughs> George Lucas, you know, have sold Lucas Arts? I mean, it, it does happen. People get sure. bored um, and they want to go do other things. And so I think that would be interesting because it seems like he's really been the kind of that, the figurehead, uh, beyond figurehead. I mean, he's running the show, it seems like, with, uh, you know, much like a Mark Zuckerberg. Like, what it, if he left Facebook, would Facebook just teeter off the rails or and same thing with matt it's like what sure. would happen is anyone else have the have the power in there so yeah. those those are the two things yeah i do think something will change but it's so hard to predict with this kind of stuff because there's so many moving parts yeah craig newmark is another yes. notable uh of uh, uh entrepreneur who who started craigslist so another another founder who has their name in their business as much as matt does in automatic um yeah, man, I know it's one of the things that uh, I think that a lot of people get caught up in being like, you know, hey, there's venture capital here. There's there, He has to satisfy his uh, returns on investments and all that stuff. I think the, the actual thread uh, that drives Matt to do this, Matt Mullenweg, is I think he's trying to outsmart venture capital lists. Um, I think anybody who looks at automatic and and the dilution of the WordPress brand that he has, right? I think any venture capital goes, oh my God, 30% of the web? We must get a piece of this man. Uh, but that is not taking, in, they don't take into account that this is a huge footprint of open source, uh, uh, freely hosted or self-hosted WordPress sites, not just the automatic WordPress.com product. And I think that Matt is actually trying to outsmart venture capitalists by taking these slower investments over time. Um, but the open source community is the, is the fodder in, in this. So the freelancers, the consultants, the small indie plugin developers, um, I think he's trying to protect WordPress to be open source and to not directly monetize the core of free WordPress at the sake mm -hmm. of us <laughs> if that makes sense right like he doesn't he's trying to fend off venture capitalists and put jetpack in the middle and say guess what let's monetize this instead mm. you know that's my yeah theory. and that's a so that's a pretty you don't you don't have no, to agree I, with it i think it's interesting <laughs> just the hard part it is there. it's speculation and you know who knows what is is going on in matt's head and right the charitable interpretation is yes he's he's doing exactly what you're saying and and i think that'd be super noble and super cool yeah. if that's what he's doing I, you know, the, I, I tend to believe the best of people. So I actually like your, inter I like your interpretation, you know, um, having not heard, a, a, I mean, I've heard other theories, but that's, that's the one I would, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt, sure. I would say. You recently redeveloped uh, Startups for the Rest of Us podcast and you, you uh, doc, Startups for the Rest of Us dot com uh, podcast website. Uh, and you used, didn't you use Beaver Builder? I thought I heard you say. I don't think it's in Beaver because I hired a consultant to do it. Um, yeah, Calvin at Free Shifter. Oh, okay. And I don't know if it uses, it's funny, I don't know if it uses Beaver Builder. I've made a bunch of changes in it, but I just don't even know what, <laughs> this is how, I use WordPress. I mean, robwalling.com, startups for the rest of us, but I'm not, and I used to write PHP. I used to build little plugins, but this is like 10 years ago, you know, so I am I'm more about getting content sure. in, more of an end user these days than actually knowing what would Beaver Builder look like, you know. But either way, I think I, I did hear that, you know, the site was like a decade old and, and you were able to quickly turn it around with a fresh new design and it wasn't as painful as what our good friend uh, Justin's going through. Absolutely. Things Absolutely. And if you think about it, static sites are, are what, a year or two at best in terms of, of getting traction. And if we go back to when WordPress was a year or two old, it was a shit show. 
I was I the first time I used WordPress was two thousand seven, yeah. maybe. I'm trying to think of when it was. It was a long time ago, and it was it was yeah. pretty it was rough, you know. So give static sites a decade, assuming that they do get adoption, and I think it'll get better. But you're right; these days, static sites is definitely not for the faint of heart. That's where WordPress has such an advantage. The ecosystem is just so powerful. Yeah, for sure. Um, one final question here. I heard you hint at something about doing something in the podcasting space. Do you have anything we can share on that? My topic? oh, I said my top secret podcasting project. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm not launching another software company. If that's what you're hinting <laughs> at, there is no way. Okay, no. Damn. It is. It's content. Yeah, it's it's something I've been. It's audio content. So it's. Um, cool. I won't say it's another podcast. It's kind of a tie-in. It's it's stuff. But All it's right. like the most ambitious, most time-consuming and most expensive audio project I've ever done. So it's, and it's turning out really good. Like I'm super stoked on it. Um, so I hope the, the, the reception is, is, you know, is good. And so I'll be talking about that on startups for the rest of us, frankly. And, um, for, awesome. if, if someone's interested in hearing about it, it's, uh, startups with us.com. You can enter your email and I'll let, I'll let you know about it. And Tiny Seeds Next Cohort launches in on November 1st, right? That's the, yeah, the application process launches oh, November 1st. Process. Yep, it'll run for a month. And then, I mean, from there, it's three months of interviewing and then making offers and then getting legal and that, you know, all that. So it'll be early 2020 by the time the batch starts. But yeah, we'll, we'll kick it off November 1. And people can head to the website to apply. Yep, tinyseed.com. Hopefully not a thousand of them. Well, maybe Hopefully a thousand. Not. <laughs> I it's this good pro, you know, it's a good problem to have. It's still a problem yeah, when you get that sure. many applicants, you know. Awesome, awesome. Uh, where where else can people say thanks for doing the show? Uh, at Rob Walling on Twitter. I've actually been on Twitter a little more these days, so hope to uh, hope to see you there. Awesome stuff. It's Mariport.com. Mariport.com slash subscribe to join that mailing list. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>